Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. It's finally happening. My bank is leaving town. But all banks are the same, no? Unless, of course, the bank that's leaving you has chimed with some of the most significant moments in your life. My family moved back from North America when I was a young teenager, and my father's first business was located in a tiny attic room at the top of an old stone building on the corner of College Green, overlooking Trinity College. To visit him at work, I had to climb a high turret, its winding stairway lit only by small occasional windows which trickled daylight across the twisting stairs, each step higher and darker, until I reached the shadowed landing that led to my father's office door. Opening that door was always a wonder. Three tall windows to my left flooded daylight into the room, spilling brightness across the floor, and over two desks nestled on either side of the doorway. One desk hunkered in front of the three light-scattering windows, but across from it, under slanting, low-hanging eaves, sat my father, a man you'd think too big to fit into such a compact space. He'd tuck himself into his pitched nook like a large captain in a small cockpit, and there he'd work from morning till evening. I loved watching him work. It was another him, this serious man, who dictated letters into a dictaphone, spoke assertively on the telephone, and unfurled his bold, elegant handwriting across detailed pages with a heavy, flowing fountain pen. Normally warm and funny, this him was strong and powerful, seeming to my young eyes as if he ruled the world from that tiny stronghold, a master commander of the very skies and treetops that the tall windows revealed, his throne higher than Trinity College, his domain the whole of Ireland. Unassailable, he was the forger of the future of my family. I could not know that he would be toppled by a heart attack before a couple of years would pass, his capacious heart, I guess, unable to carry the strain of being king of the world. Anyway, he opened his company's bank account in an elegant greystone building just around the corner from that office, a beauty of an edifice, fronted, as my young imagination thought banks should be, by black iron gates. And he walked with me into that building to open my first Irish bank account right there in the centre of Dublin, a place I would walk past countless times over the ensuing decades, never once without thinking of him, nor without feeling his presence. That bank seemed like such a solid thing, a reassuring structure, one that could never falter or fall away. Only, like my seemingly unassailable father, it turns out that it could. And letting go of it now is all wrapped up with the still stir upable grief at losing him. And I've made a meal of it. I've been in and out of that bank too many times since it announced it was closing. I've chatted with shell shocked members of staff, some like me, in denial, others privately excited at the imminence of change in their destinies. 
Many had worked there for years, others for only a few, but they'd bought their first homes on the strength of the fact that they worked for a bank, and a bank was a dependable thing, wasn't it? More recently, those staff members, their own end dates now looming, have started to look sadder as they've said goodbye to colleagues slipping off into different futures and to customers coming in to close their accounts. One teller told me that many customers spoke of important moments that that bank had been a part of, strangely sentimental now about loans and overdrafts and disagreements and generosities that made the very fabric of their lives weave differently. Sometimes, she said, there were tears right there in the foyer at this final severing of this significant connection. And that'll be me. There'll be tears. I joked with one manager that they'll be prizing those iron gates out of my cold, dead hands on the day that bank finally closes to the public. Because, like those people who just had to tell their stories before walking away for the last time, I'll be letting go of more than an account number and a financial service. You think a bank is not a flighty thing, that it will be in your corner until it's your own funeral it is financing. But that's not how it turns out to be. A bank is as transient as any other manifest thing, as transient as a human life, as fleeting as my father's. A hundred years ago in Ireland, his name was on everyone's lips. A famous dandy, a poet, a novelist, a dreamer, a member of Dáil Éireann, the confidant of Arthur Griffith, a hero for the nationalist cause, he was the kind of public man who would surely be remembered forever. But today, a century later, this once household name has long vanished from memory. His name was Darrell Figgis, Born in Dublin in 1882, he was the son of Arthur Figgis, an Irish tea merchant who moved his family to Calcutta when Darrell was an infant. A decade later, the family returned to Ireland. As a young man working at a London tea brokerage, Figgis began to write poetry. His subsequent output included a first collection with a warm introduction from G.K. Chesterton. Subsequently, he wrote novels under the name Michael Ireland, as well as stage plays, essays and further volumes of poetry, before moving to Ackle Island, where, as Porrig Cullum put it, he created for himself the role of a Gaelic prince. On Ackle, Figgis organised a branch of the Irish Volunteers, and it was in this capacity, in May 1914, at a luncheon in London with the Irish nationalist, Mrs Alice Stopford-Green, that he met the founder of the Irish Volunteers, Owen McNeill. Over lunch, Figgis, a dashing, darkly handsome figure with a startlingly red, spade-cut beard, 
agreed to purchase German guns and ammunition for the volunteers. With £1,500 in cash, half of it provided by Mrs Green, he travelled to Hamburg along with the novelist and yachtsman Erskine Childers, both of them posing as Mexican partisans. Having concluded business with the German arms supplier Magnus Brothers, Figgis went off to the opera, while Childers remained in his hotel room, agonising over the small print of the contract he had just signed using a false name. Two months later, in July 1914, Childers famously sailed his yacht, the Asgard, into Hoth, carrying the bulk of this contraband. Figgis was prominent the following year at the funeral of O'Donovan Russa, on which occasion Porrick Pierce delivered his celebrated oration. Although an ackle during the Easter Rising, Figgis was arrested later in 1916 and deported to Reading Jail. On his release, he published The Gaelic State in the Past and Future, a work highly regarded by Arthur Griffith, who invited the writer to join Sinn Féin. Within months, Figgis had become one of the party's two honorary secretaries. Darrell Figgis's personal vanity and reputation as a high-stepping man about town meant that he was more admired than liked. Following the acceptance by the Dáil of the Treaty in early 1922, he stood in the general election in June of that year as an independent candidate for Dublin County. He advocated strong support for the treaty, despite his position as a member of the Sinn Féin Ard Corla National Executive, which mainly took an anti-treaty stance. Midway through the election campaign, a group of anti-treaty IRA members forced their way into Figgis's Dublin flat, and despite the objections of Millie Figgis, his wife, held her husband down and shaved off his famous red beard. He squealed like a pig, recalled Robert Briscoe, one of the assailants and subsequently Lord Mayor of Dublin. I think he'd have been happier had we just cut his throat. The event was a national sensation. Poor Darrell Figgis lost his nice red beard, wrote Kitty Kiernan to Michael Collins, her fiancé. I could imagine you laughing. He was lucky it was only his beard. Collins responded by presenting the Figgises with a pistol for their protection. Figgis was elected to the Dáil and then appointed by Griffith to the 1922 Constitution Committee. After the Civil War, he was on a commission to establish the Free State's first public radio service, but had to resign in disgrace when allegations of bribes for broadcasting licences arose. Shortly afterwards, in November 1924, Millie Figgis went by taxi into the Wicklow Mountains, dismissed the driver and shot herself with the gun given by Michael Collins. In a letter found after her death, she said she had never recovered from the terror of the attack on her husband. But there may have been other factors at play. Figgis had been having an affair in London with Rita North, a young dance teacher. In 1925, Rita North became pregnant and after a surgical procedure, probably an attempted abortion, she died from peritonitis. At the inquiry that followed, Figgis acknowledged paternity of the deceased child. Two days later, he booked into a hotel in Bloomsbury, turned on the gas jet of his bedroom heater and was found dead the next morning. His funeral in London was attended by a small group of friends. He was laid to rest in the cemetery at West Hampstead, where his headstone was inscribed, Not Gone from Memory.
In 2008, an Irish researcher of history unearthed Darrell Figgis's headstone from under half a foot of soil, where, for over 80 years, it had lain forgotten. I had been to see the clash and was waiting for a southbound tube train when Susan made her move. I've been watching you, she said. You were at the gig, weren't you? Yes, I replied, taking in her back-combed hair and a T-shirt that read, What are you looking at? What did you think of them? I don't think of them at all, she replied with a wonky, lopsided smile. And what do you do when you're not chatting up girls on a train? I'm not chatting you up, I said, a hint of indignation in my voice, and we're not yet on a train. Ooh, she was laughing now. Observant little fellow, aren't we? But you haven't answered my question. I work in a cinema, I replied truthfully. No, she was shaking her head. I don't see you there. I don't see you in a cinema at all. It had started to occur to me that this might be the start of a conversation that would end with me penniless and without shoes, locked in the wardrobe of a backpacker's hostel. But I couldn't resist. So where do you see me, I asked. I see you having breakfast with me tomorrow morning, she said. There's a cafe next to Warren Street Station. Don't be later than nine. And she was gone. So the next day, because I had been brought up to do as I was told, I went to the cafe and was eating toast when she arrived. What do you know about beat poetry, she asked on her way to the counter. Not much, I said. You mean like Allen Ginsberg? That's it. She sat across the table from me and stirred too much sugar into her tea. But it needs updating, and it can't be American. My mind immediately turned to the riches that ticket-tearing had recently brought me. Do people make a living out of poetry, I asked. No, they don't, Susan said, and I'll tell you why. Because the modern poet lacks something his historical forebears took for granted. It was still 8.45 in the morning. Was I really having a conversation that involved historical forebears already? I looked at Susan blankly. Patrons, she said. They all had patrons. But isn't that a bit old-fashioned? If you regard a situation whereby the rich and the fortunate support the talented and poor as old-fashioned, then yes, I suppose it is. But I would be very disappointed and would have to assume that our professional relationship was at an end. I let her words hang in the air for a moment before saying... We don't have a professional relationship, do we? We're meeting over breakfast, aren't we? I can't think of anything more professional than that. I had by this time finished my toast and was wondering whether I should leave when Susan went on. So the question is, where is your patron? And the answer, she pushed a scrap of paper across the table, is here. Before I could look at the scrap properly, she smoothed it flat and read out its message. 17 Cheney Walk, Chelsea. Is that where you live, I asked. No, She looked at me with something resembling pity. This is the address of John Paul Getty. What? According to the Sunday Times, Mr Getty is the richest man in the world. 
She looked me hard in the eye and, for the first time since we'd met, lowered the tone of her voice. If you want to be rich, you need to go where the money is. And so it was that later that evening I stood beside Susan on the front step of 17 Cheney Walk and pressed its doorbell as confidently as I could. Somewhere, far down a hallway, a hallway we both imagined was lined with marble and champagne, we heard a bell softly ringing. And then there was a deep and long-lasting silence. And when it ended, I tried the bell again. And then the silence returned. After about twenty minutes, we decided that either Mr Getty was out, or that perhaps he was enjoying an early night, and eager not to disturb him further, we retraced our steps towards the gate. We were just stepping back onto the street when the door opened, and a small man, wearing a suit and a pair of bedroom slippers, scowled towards us from the hallway. "'What do you want?' he asked. "'Excuse me,' Susan called back at him. "'Are you John Paul Getty?' "'I wish I was,' the man said. "'What do you want him for?' "'My friend here,' and Susan pointed at me, "'is a beat poet. "'He is, however, eager not to starve, "'and I thought that Mr Getty might like to help.' "'I don't know how Mr Getty got so rich,' the man told us, "'but I bet it wasn't by giving money to poets.' "'We don't want all his money,' Susan said, "'just a percentage.' An amount he'd hardly miss. You're talking about a stipend, the man continued. Exactly. For the first time he turned his gaze firmly towards me. You're very quiet for a poet, he started. Are you any good? For some reason I suddenly thought that I might be, and filled with unfounded confidence answered, Yes, I'm very good. He asked whether I could name a poem or two that I'd written, and from somewhere I called out, Oxford Circus Breakdown. Hmm. He seemed quite impressed. I was on a roll now and shouted, I knew a girl called Paris. That's the one I'm working on at the moment. He nodded again, and, as if suddenly remembering something he'd meant to do earlier, reached into his inside pocket and took out a wallet. Here's five pounds, he said. Buy yourselves a fish supper and get off my property. Do you think that was him, I asked, as we sat on a wall eating? Well, he did give us money, didn't he? Susan replied. Yes, I said. But not very much. And if it was John Paul Getty, then he talked about himself in the third person. A lot of successful people do that, said Susan, before adding, Susan's thinking of doing it too. Yes, I replied. I bet she is. Morning at Blondie's. The girls from Blondie's hair salon register their sorrow in the condolence book. They'll miss Madge's Tuesday morning visits for the shampoo and set. Though long past bothering about the waves and quiffs, she liked the sleepy warmth of tender circles massaged into her temples, the care the girls took with the jets of water, their patience with her endless 
fumble and fritter through scraps of paper in her handbag. Their understanding when she touched each wall to solve the mystery of the door. The girls at Blondie's never minded the biscuits crumble to a sludge in her saucer, but fussed over the imaginary cat she stroked on her lap as they coaxed her thin hair over the rollers. Don't bother the girls at Blondie's today, whinging about your taily ends and scraggy layers. Don't show up looking for colour to disguise your harsh grey roots. The girls at Blondie's are grieving the loss of Madge, distracting themselves with the nervy rawness of endless cups of coffee and the quiet puff of a cigarette at the door. If you imagine you may have seen a ghost, it is, to say the least, somewhat unsettling. I knew Mickey Finn was dead, and yet there he was in a Galway pub. It gave me a shock. He seemed to look me straight in the eye as he lifted his pint glass in salutation. But the eyes that gazed at me were still and frozen in time, captured in a portrait on the barroom wall. This was not my first encounter with Mickey Finn. My initial acquaintance was when we were inseparable school pals attending the CBS Primary School in Callan, County Kilkenny. We shared a desk for many of those chalk dust days as we watched the slow creep of the minute hand on the clock. We were best friends, entangled in mischief, escapade and imagination. We swam and fished in the river and occasionally mitched. Throughout those years we were inseparable. However, our friendship was not to last. Mickey was the child of a banking family, his father a manager. As so often happens, they were relocated to a new branch. Mickey moved from our quiet midland community to a large town in the west of Ireland. One day he was seated beside me at our desk, and the next he was gone. We were pen pals for a while, but the mercurial nature of youth intervened and our communications dried up. Over time, I believe, we simply forgot about each other. However, Mickey had one or two remarkable features that might be slow to leave anyone's memory. One was a shock of white blonde hair, and the other a cheekily upturned and freckled nose. As a child, he resembled the kid depicted as cover image on the American humour magazine Mad. In 1970... Over a decade from the first time I'd laid eyes on my boyhood friend, I was exiting Kilburn Tube Station in London on a wet February morning. Two youths were busking in the rain, one played a fiddle, the other a guitar. The fiddler had shoulder-length white blonde hair, 
and his upturned nose caught raindrops. I stopped and listened. The fiddler was mesmerizingly good. When they paused their playing, I ventured to confirm my suspicions. It was none other than my old pal from those lost school days, Mickey Finn. We crossed the road to a pub and had a pint or two together. Those were times devoid of email, mobile phones or social media. Mickey was living rough, no fixed abode. We parted with just a handshake and, as in the past, the vagaries of life and living rendered the encounter just another fleeting memory. However, that was not to be the end of our story. Many years later, a member of Mickey's family made contact to let me know that Mickey had passed away in April of 1987. He was 35 years old. I discovered then that he was an astonishingly gifted traditional fiddler. He was present at the core of Galway's vibrant music scene in the 70s and 80s. He played with Mary Coughlin, Christy Moore and Frankie Gavin. It was said by Frankie Gavin that Mickey never played the same tune in the same way twice. He is understood to have left a lasting influence on his contemporary musicians. He formed a traditional group calling themselves Dickler Fitz, named after a colourful Callan character that Mickey remembered from his childhood. This group was a spirited assemblage who would eventually morph into Day Dannon, but without the presence of Mickey amongst their ranks. Mickey had a weakness. He was hard to manage, a little unreliable. He was rather too fond of a drop and his musical career became peppered with alcohol-related incidents. Those heady days of pub-based music sessions took their toll on him. Even though his friends and family tried valiantly to support him in his struggle to battle alcohol addiction, in the end all the brave efforts failed. The man who so many believed to hold the potential of becoming the finest traditional fiddler in Galway lost the fight before he ever reached his prime. His portrait adorns that wall in the front lounge of the Keys Bar in Galway City. It is rendered in charcoal by the artist Ger Coughlin and is stunningly lifelike. In the portrait, Mickey looks out at the gathered drinkers. On his knee is a battered, wide-brimmed leather hat. In his right hand is a fresh pint of stout. He holds a cigarette in his fingers. His hair has darkened from blonde to fair, but his cheeky nose is as I will always remember. On my phone I have a collection of tunes played by the group Dickler Fitz featuring Mickey on fiddle. The recording is entitled The Brittany Sessions. I plugged in an earpiece, hit the play button and raised my glass to my long-lost school friend Mickey Finn, the greatest fiddler who never was. The end of Cash is coming down the tracks.
Those coins and notes that have slashed around pockets and purses for two and a half thousand years have their days numbered, it seems. The Danes, having had no bank or ATM robberies last year, saw this as further evidence of the inevitable. The cash I first met as a child, taking me up to my teenage years and decimalisation, was that of the new Irish state, first minted and printed in 1928. An innocence and wholesomeness pinged off it, each coin boasting a native Irish animal, horse, leaping salmon, stomping bull, wolfhound, hare, a hen and her chickens, a pig and her piglets, and on the all but worthless farthing, a woodcock. The coins were either new and shiny, or dented and discoloured, and I remember the smell after clutching them in my small, hot palm, that mix of metal and something more elemental, lightly the grime of the thousands of hands those little metal buttons had passed through, the countless tills they found their way in and out of, traces of all of those carriers, transaction after transaction. The notes, glorious and ridiculously big, Hazel Lavery looking out at us with a knowing face, representing as the design team, including Yeats envisaged, an emblematic female figure reminiscent of the mythical Kathleen O'Houlihan, her shawl-covered head, arm resting on a harp against a background of hills and lakes. On the back, the river masks from Dublin's Custom House sculptures, each denomination a different colour, with the orange ten-shilling note, or at a push the green pound note being the ones most likely to come into my orbit back then. Pocket money when I was a six-year-old, paid on a Saturday, amounted to a sixpenny bit or the equivalent of two threepenny bits. Deferred gratification never my thing, I'd beat a path down the road to cross the terrazzo floor of the rendezvous on Deer Park Road in Mount Marion. There I'd stand, at the wonky wooden table, looking over a low platform, displaying boxes filled with loose sweets. Gobstoppers, aniseed balls, bonbons, bullseyes, all ate for a penny. And before I was back out on the road, one of those big, sugary spheres would be protruding into my cheek, misshaping my face. On hot summer days, clutching two and a half pence, I'd order a wafer of ice cream. In coin-speak, that was two one-penny coins with the hen and chickens and one halfpenny with the pig and piglets. A slice of ice cream cut and wedged between two wafers handed down to be eaten slowly, sometimes lasting most of the way home. First communion and those silent offerings subtly dropped into my white cloth bag worked with the drawstring and tassels were a revelation. The day's takings Mostly notes. Communion was lucrative. And there was that strange thing that adults did, bending down to lift my small hand, a seeming whiff of conspiracy about their action. They'd press a coin or a note into my palm, tucking my fingers tightly over their offering and imparting some whispered advice. Buy yourself an ice cream, they'd say, or a comic, or a mineral. The tooth fairy got in on the act too. As I'd sleep, She'd replace an our redundant baby tooth left at the bottom of a glass of water with a sixpenny bit. I never quite understood the business model, but I was better off by sixpence in the end. 
and there were many one-shilling pieces and their stomping bulls given for the bus fare to black rock baths during the long summer holidays, creatively repurposed to buy sweets or ice cream with the long dawdling walk down and back up Mount Merion Avenue worth it. My first summer job in 1968 consisted of eight stifling weeks in Chivers Jam Factory in Klonski. The air permeated with a clawing smell of boiled sugar and fruit. Fridays, though, brought reward in the shape of an envelope with a small window through which notes could be seen, coins slithering around inside, nine pound, eight shillings and sixpence written on the front. On our wedding day in 1977, my husband, according to some ritual, gifted me a small silver threepenny bit, that absolute doat of a coin with the hair on it. In 1985, on meeting our new baby daughter, a Kenyan Asian friend slipped a fifty-pound note and a one-penny coin under her as she lay in her Moses basket. This, he said, followed his tradition of gifting a large denomination and a small one on the birth of a baby. All this, if predictions of a cashless society come to pass, will disappear. No more children's piggy banks are stopping to give coins or notes to someone sitting on a pavement. No tips pass directly to waiting staff to make sure it's theirs. I will not have my turn pressing a coin into the hand of a child, nor will I put coins in a slot machine. My purse will be filled only with plastic cards. Contactless. That inspired word that encapsulates the whole sorry slide. So with deep and tender sadness I say farewell, filthy looker, and thanks for all of those treasured memories. On this morning's programme, we heard A Kind of Closure by Sharon Hogan, A Household Name by Peter Cunningham, Susan Calling was by Chris McCallum, Morning at Blondie's, a poem by Margaret Galvin, The Fiddler Who Never Was was by Joe Carney, and lastly, Filthy Lucre by Miriam Uleman. The music today was Nocturne No. 5 in B-flat by John Field, played by Benjamin Frith. Duetti Irlandesi in Einar Schall by Frank Corcoran, played by Martin Johnson on cello with Fergal Caulfield on piano. Money was by the Flying Lizards. The humming chorus from Puccini's Madame Butterfly, performed by the Rome Opera House Chorus. And reels from the Brittany recordings by Dickler Fitz, featuring Mickey Finn on fiddle with Terry Smith on guitar. And there's a book you may be interested in, The Beekeeper and the River. It's a new collection of stories by Joe Carney and it's published by Ballpoint Press and is out now. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Condon and the producer of the programme is Sarah Binchy. And if you'd like to listen back, you can go to the RTE Radio Player or our website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.